is a really tremendous blessing for each one of us. If you have your Bibles, ah, thank you. Um, just a reminder too, we have a Christmas Eve service uh, on Thursday night at five o'clock. So please keep that in mind. Love to have you come out for that also. All right. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn over to an Old Testament passage, Micah chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 5 in our time together uh, today. Now, this is one of the minor prophets, which is almost impossible to find unless you start in Daniel and just kind of keep going until you come upon it, okay? So it is between Jonah and Nahum, right? Yeah, but where's Jonah and Nahum? If all else fails, go to the table of contents, look up Micah, find out the page number, okay? So we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and repeating some of the same kinds of themes that you heard in this video this morning. Father, as we come to your word, again, we would pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of preoccupations and thoughts that would Keep us from being transformed through your spirit from your word. Lord, will you do your good work in our lives? As we talk about an old story, may that old story never become old in our lives. May it be vibrant and alive and life-changing as we hear it afresh. Father, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, places are important to us. Like, if I go on, I've been overseas quite a bit on mission trips. And if I come back to you and I say, hey, I was in Desna, Ukraine. That means nothing to you. Really, you could, you could just, you frankly could care less. But if I tell you, hey, my wife and I, we were in Paris, France, or, or London, England, Rome, Italy. All of a sudden, when you hear about those places, you go, wow, because significant things happen in significant places, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. I suppose sometimes we can even think about a similar way about birthplaces, so, my wife was born in Santa Barbara, California. I mean, they make TV programs named after that. I was born in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Like, have you ever seen a TV program called Lansdale, Pennsylvania? I doubt it. I mean, at best, Lansdale is, sits in the shadow of a larger city like Philadelphia. And we all hear of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah, things happen there. Lansdale, who knows what goes on in Lansdale. Because a place like Lansdale is always in the shadow of that larger city. Do you see? I suppose it's always been like that. It's not been true of biblical times. If you were living in Palestine, biblical times, and I said to you, Jerusalem, you'd be going like, yeah, that's the place. 
That, that's where all the power happens, the might, the temple, the, the grandeur, the majesty. And I say, and, and, and Bethlehem? You say, you mean little, insignificant, unimportant Bethlehem? No, 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 no. That, that stands in the shadows of Jerusalem itself. When you come to Micah chapter 5, what you find is Jerusalem and Bethlehem in its shadows. And you are expecting, as the passage opens up, if anything is going to happen, it will happen in a significant place with significant human beings doing significant things. Won't you? Not in that little insignificant town over there called Bethlehem. And if you think that way, you would be greatly wrong, misinformed. Micah takes place, the story here takes place 700 years before the birth of Christ. Micah is going to be writing in a time period when the Assyrians are going to come in and and wipe out what we call the northern kingdom of Israel. 722, wipe it out. And he's speaking to the southern group about the northern, and he's also telling them in the south, if you don't change, you too are going to be wiped out. It's, it's a dark time. It's a hard time. And, and as Mike is speaking here about the same time as Isaiah, he's going to talk about something that only God can do, but in the most unusual of places. So what does he say about Jerusalem? Look at what chapter 5 verse 1 says. And although there's, there's some debate, this is probably talking about the, 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 the coming destruction of the nation, the southern nation, Jerusalem itself. So the writer says, Micah, as he's looking forward toward that, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And and as he's looking at that event that's going to be coming, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And he looks at that, he says, what I want you to do, Jerusalem, is get all your best. Get your military, get your political people. Think what you can do. And in your own might, with your own city wall, marshal your troops and try to hold back what Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to do. And folks, it fails. King Zedekiah, the, Babylon comes in and wipes out this city and doesn't just strike, strikes him on the cheek, takes him and off he goes into captivity with the people of God. That's the best that man can do. Take your best city, Jerusalem, with your best people. Marshal your troops. Because you've walked away from God, 
all you will experience is failure. So then there's no hope. Let's, let, let's just kind of give up. And Micah says, oh no. No, no, that is coming in 586. But there is something else coming. But not from Jerusalem. It's going to come from that little, insignificant, unimportant town of Bethlehem itself. And so look at what he says in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's kind of interesting. I, I live in Lancaster and the next town over is Ephrathah. You know, the, these, you know, now we, we name our towns after these places, but it's just kind of fascinating. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, so it, it probably refers to that particular area to distinguish it from the Beth, there was another Bethlehem in the north. And so he, he's, he's being very, very specific here. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Two things surface here in verse two, as he looks at Bethlehem. First of all, it's insignificant. You know, in the, in the ancient world, to be significant means that you have some power, influence. And the text says, you guys aren't even big enough to have a significant clan. You, you, you can't even marshal enough people to be part of a military group to fight and protect yourselves for heaven's sakes. No, no. You are, when you think of clans, you don't think of Bethlehem. It's just too small. And yet, Isn't that where God often does his greatest work? There there was no walls of significance around Bethlehem. They they couldn't protect themselves. And God says, I will choose that place because years before, there was a young boy by the name of David who was also born in Bethlehem. It was also an insignificant town at that time. But God says, I do my great work often through very insignificant things. Isn't that amazing? And and if that's the case, who gets the glory for it? God does. Do you see? So on the one hand, Bethlehem, is, is, is insignificant. Certainly connected to David, but even with David, it was insignificant. So the connection is important. Secondly, he's going to say, though, from this insignificant place, this little town of Bethlehem, I am going to bring my Messiah. And this Messiah figure is going to do something that no other individual will ever repeat. It will change history forever. So how does he describe it there in verse two? Out of you, out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me. For who? For God. 
Jehovah God is saying, I am going to do something through Bethlehem. And what I do for, for Bethlehem will ultimately give glory to me. Because it will be my work. And so out of Bethlehem will come one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The one that comes out will be the Messiah King like no other. From ancient times. I think what he's referring to here is a whole series of prophecies that go back to Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have just sinned and plunged the whole human race into sin and rebellion. In the midst of all that, God says, you know what? One will come from the seed of the woman and that one will crush the head of Satan. It will destroy death and sin. So already sin has just come into the world. God is already promising, I am going to do something through a human being, but not a normal human being. God ultimately becoming one of us. Do you see? And come forward with me to Genesis chapter 49. And you have a whole bunch of blessings going out to Israel's children. She speaks about Judah. He he says these words. Let me just read them to you. It's great stuff. In Genesis 49 verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And come with me a little bit farther and David is now on the scene. And we we looked at this in our study of David before, but you come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And again, you have these incredible promises that God says, I am going to do something through David that will be forever. And one of his descendants is going to come up who will be the ultimate eternal king forever. And Micah, as he's writing about the destruction of the nation, is saying, it's not hopeless. But your hope is never going to be bound up in human beings. they, They will always fail you. Look at Jerusalem. All its might. But I will do a work for my glory in which the Messiah figure shall come. And nothing will be the same when that happens. Then what he does in verses three to six, I'll just probably run it to verse five, but in verses three to to six, he he gives you a a little bit more kind of chronological unpacking of all of that. And you saw that even in the video here. And he's going to say, now look, uh, this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then, this is going to happen. And I, and I want to look at those with you. What, what is it that he says is going to happen? Look what he says in verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. He says, because of the sins of the nation, Israel will go into exile. Yes, they will come back to the land, but even when they come back to the land, they're really still in exile. Because 
They're, they're, they're not following God the way God intended. No one can without his empowerment. And so the nation again spins through all these cycles of disobedience and false worship and putting on a show and hypocrisy and all the stuff. So they kind of go their own way. And he says, there will be this time of exile. And even though you come back, it's not the way it should be until the birth of that one. Look what he says. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And, and, and not to confuse you, but, but, but as he speaks, he's speaking both about Christ's first coming and what will happen at the end of Christ's second coming. And it all kind of gets meshed together. But what he's saying here is this. The only hope for a people who have been put into exile by God and cast away The only hope for them to be restored and brought back into a relationship with God is through this one who will be born of a woman. Do you see? And and it's because he comes that humankind can have a relationship with him again. There can be restoration. There can be peace. There can be joy. There can be hope. What else does he say? Look at, look at verse four. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Israel, you're gonna go into captivity. The turning point will be the coming of the Messiah when a woman gives birth to him. That will be your hope. And there will be the possibility of now being restored. And folks, we know this. In light of Christ's first coming, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been restored to God. You say, well, what about the nation of Israel and all of its fullness? That still waits his second coming. There, there's, there's still a distance there. So Christ's first coming and second coming, they're, they're, they're kind of seen right next to each other, like seeing two mountain peaks. They look like they're close, but there's a big valley in between. And, and he says, look, this is what the Messiah is doing. He is restoring and he will shepherd. Sometimes when we hear the word shepherd, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. We say, you know, shepherd, whatever. Yeah, aren't they the guys that are out there with flocks? But in the Old Testament, the word is used so often to refer to the leadership of Israel. How how are they running the nation right now? How's it going? And what you'll find all the way through the prophets is it'll say again and again, the shepherds have hurt God's people, leading them incorrectly, using them, abusing them. It's just a political game. What we need is a true shepherd. And God says one's coming. And when this one comes, he will shepherd his people like no other. And then 
people will really know what it means to live. Do you see? And then in verse five, running all the way down to verse six, and he will be our peace. As Micah runs, writes this, the people have no idea what peace means. All they know is warfare and turmoil and pain and hurt and threat and fear. And this text says, one is coming who will restore, who will give life, who will bring true peace. Now, it's true. You say, well, Christ is coming. This world still isn't, you know, it's not very peaceful. Fair enough, fair enough. But what he did in his first coming allows us to have peace with God, doesn't it? As a foretaste of the peace that the whole world will experience at one time in the future. Do you see? This text was a text that was known in the first century, folks. When you come over to Matthew chapter 2, and there you find magi that come from the east and ask Herod, where is he born king of the Jews? And you remember what happens? Herod doesn't know where this Messiah figure is going to be born. He doesn't care. Matter of fact, he would be threatened by that. So he goes to his religious leaders and he says, So where will this king be born? And in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod asked the question, verse 5, verse 4, it says, When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They replied, In Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. By the time of the first century, there were people that were holding on to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And they were saying, at some point, what we need is a Messiah figure to come and to turn everything around. And so when Herod asks the religious leaders, where will this happen? Bing, they go right away to Micah 5 too. But you notice how they change the quote just a little bit? They don't say, Bethlehem, although you are small among the clans of Israel. They say, by no means are you small among the clans or among the leaders. You know what they're saying? With the coming of Jesus Christ, Bethlehem, which seems insignificant, now becomes significant because of its connection to Jesus Christ himself. And so what they say, this Bethlehem that we've been waiting about, when that king is born there, by no means is Bethlehem going to be small anymore unimportant. So on my drive up here today with my wife, 
we drove by exits that would lead you to places like Bethlehem, Ephrata, Nazareth. Why do we name those places and towns after insignificant places in antiquity? Because of what they were in and of themselves? No. Because of who they're connected to. And when you're connected to Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, folks, that changes everything. The insignificant becomes significant because it's connected to the only one who really is significant. That's the way it works. It's the way it is in your life, isn't it? Beautiful. Doesn't matter where you were born, your background. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and and you say, hey, I don't have much to offer. You just bring him what you have and God takes the insignificant and because you're connected to the significant one. You find significance. O little town of Bethlehem, the insignificant becomes significant. A world marked by hopelessness and death and distance and pain and darkness because of one person is now a place of life and restoration and peace, and joy. And so here afresh again, the words of Luke 2, when the angels appear to the shepherds. Glory, uh, let me start in verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, A savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The insignificant becomes significant only because of its connection to the only one who is significant. So as you think through this Christmas season, it may be that you're with us online or you're visiting with us here today. Whatever else you think of Christmas in this season, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is that you've come and you've bowed before this king. And you've asked him to be your Lord and Savior to forgive you of all your sins because this shepherd we learn from John chapter 10, is such a good shepherd that he will lay down his life for the sheep. And he's died for you. He came to die to deliver you from sin and death. There would be no greater gift that you could receive this day than to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And Christian... Remember afresh, it doesn't matter how many gifts you get or how many you give. I mean, it's all nice. What matters is that the insignificant is connected to the significant one. 
And then we have the joy and blessing to have peace with God, restored to him, know what life is all about. And we, like those shepherds, can go out and declare, he has come. May we do the same, using every opportunity we have in this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we, as a rebellious people, deserve nothing from you but judgment. And yet, you are the God of all grace and mercy. You are holy and majestic, and that is all true. But in your mercy and your grace, you did what we could never do in all of our might and power on our own. It's impossible. You did in the most insignificant place. You changed the world. You began that process, which will find its fruition in your second coming. Lord, May we make much of Jesus Christ. May we worship him as Messiah, as shepherd, as Lord, as the only one that can give hope to a world that so desperately needs hope. So Father, in this Christmas season, thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus our blessed Lord, thank you for coming. In his name I pray, amen. You're dismissed.